Welcome to the Biodiversity Resilience Network podcast. This week, we'll be taking a look at connectivity and pandemics. This week, we have Dr. Kevin McCann from the Biodiversity Resilience Network. Dr. McCann is a mathematical ecologist who is an expert on food webs and nature's connectedness. Dr. McCann is a part of a group of university researchers studying the impact of agriculture on the environment and ways to mitigate these impacts while feeding 9.5 billion people by 2050. Welcome, Dr. McCann. So to begin with, I want to know, the spread of COVID seemed very fast. What does connectedness have to do with COVID and pandemics in general? Yeah, it's interesting to reflect on what we've all just been through in terms of the COVID pandemic. I can say uh, for myself as an ecologist, I, I'm deeply interested in connectivity. And uh, I study basically how organisms uh, interact through food webs in space. And one thing you can, as an ecologist, I've learned deeply, and that is that nature is wildly connected. So when I witnessed, and I'm sure all of us felt this to some extent, when you witnessed literally before our own eyes in quite rapid time, the propagation of a local, relatively localized initial disease in China um, through the course of weeks to, you know, days to weeks to months over the entire globe, it makes you realize what we've done as, as humans. Our human technology has put us in the point where we've actually hyper-connected the planet. And uh, not to say that things like uh, pandemics haven't happened before, but rather to say that the connectivity through sort of intercontinental, uh, you know, flights, flight paths, um, within continent movement by both flight, by flight, uh, trains, cars, you name it. Um, we are just a massively connected planet. And as people moving around this planet, we're almost what's, what modelers call a well-mixed planet. And what it means is that things like this can be expected to propagate with great uh, efficiency across globes, and they shouldn't be unexpected at all. And what we've done, of course, in this massive experiment is stay at home and try to decrease connections. We've cut off all those connections to sort of stop connectivity. And it's been one of the great solutions to this problem. From what I've seen, it, it, this massive experiment, we've done a good job as, 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 a, as a people to, to fight um, COVID. So your article in The Conversation argues that this disease pandemic is intimately tied to connectivity and that this type of pandemic spread has analogs in ecosystems. Can you explain that? Yeah, what I mean by that, this notion of whether there's an analog uh, to pand a disease pandemic in ecosystems, is, I, is as, a, as an ecologist, I mean, reflect on, on connectivity and other aspects of sort of global change um, that have rendered our planet hyper-connected. And one thing that, that made me think of is this notion of what we call dead zones. Dead zones are really a process by which we've connected sort of local land modifications, say agriculture that applies nutrients. And we've done it through a number of ways of modifying the landscape. We've increased the, the speed of that movement of that nutrients on the landscape such that it's increasing its transport across ecosystems, say from farms to streams to rivers to great lakes and ultimately to oceans. And we've increased it with such speed um, that sometimes that nutrients that was applied in a field, say, in um, southern Ontario, it moves off that field where it was supposed to be used to fertilize plants. It moves off that field and moves so fast that it's not used until it lands, some, say, in the Great Lakes or in an ocean. 
And there, that fertilizer finally does its job, and it grows what we call uh, phytoplankton or algae that are in uh, these Great Lakes or oceans. And that that grows with all this nutrients uh, landing and and through this sort of transport system there, algae can grow to great densities. And somewhat unfortunately, one of the, the species that does well with lots of nutrients in these distant ecosystems away from where the application of nutrients was is... Uh, toxic algae, algae that actually isn't eaten well by the food chain. Um, and so what that what happens is the algae will proliferate. It'll grow wonderfully on the, the distantly applied nutrients, and it will then um, eventually sediment out of the water column. It'll fall to the water column and land on the bottom. There on the bottom, nature being what it is, it is actually taken up by bacteria. Bacteria now has a ton of algae, and so it, it proliferates. Now, bacteria actually consumes oxygen. So what, what ultimately happens through these series of connections across the landscape is that bacteria consume so much oxygen that they can actually take all the oxygen out of the water and leave it in what we call a dead zone, where organic Organisms literally can't survive because there isn't enough oxygen. So this type of thing is actually has to do with us modifying the land, hyperconnecting nutrients across the landscape, and ultimately driving um, a form of diseased ecosystems around the globe. And so in my mind, that's another example of a connectivity. Um, and in this case, driving almost in quotation marks, a pandemic of ecosystem, diseased ecosystems. So... Your article in The Conversation argues that this disease pandemic is intimately tied to connectivity and this type of pandemic spread has analogs in ecosystems. Can you explain? Okay, so what are some of the things we do in the landscape to speed up the movement? Well, there's a bunch of things we do, but um, for, for let me start off by sort of saying this. It's funny because a lot of this is due to things like agriculture. It's also due to urbanization. And agriculture, in some sense, we... We fragment historically known ecosystems. Say there was a forest and we knock down forest and we actually replace it with agriculture. In a sense, we then suddenly have sort of little patches of forest everywhere, um, separated by large tracts of, of, of agriculture. And so in that sense, the forests are fragment and they become less coupled. But the flip side of that is that we start to create regionally homogenized landscapes of, of, of you know, conventional agriculture. And when we do that, we really do connect nutrients to the landscape uh, really, really strongly. As an example, some of the things we do are we include these things called tile drainage in a lot of conventional farms. And these are uh, systems that allow the nutrient, uh, the movement of water, which by virtue of uh, movement of water, nutrients across the landscape rapidly. And that's done to prevent things like uh, water to build up on a farm landscape. Uh, too much water will be soggy and can actually be the death of plants. So moving sort of uh, water across the landscape is useful. Nonetheless, moving all the water across the landscape starts to mean you move nutrients rapidly across that landscape and material. Okay, and the funny thing about water, where does it travel? But it travels to streams and rivers, which are nature's transport system to keep moving it. Um, others, the other side of that is that when we move water off the landscape using things like tile drainage, we remove um, wetlands. And wetlands are like a key source of, a uh, key buffer source for actually holding nutrients and slowing down the movement of nutrients on the landscape. Finally, one thing we often do in conventional farm is remove sort of um, all these sort of ecosystem 
aspects that are beside streams, things like riparian forests and, and plants. And these root, these are heavily rooted systems, and they're really good at actually stopping and getting in the way of movements of nutrients as they move across the landscape. So once those are removed, we have tidal drainage, we've really eased the move of nutrients from field into stream. And by virtue of that, we're moving a lot of unused fertilizer into streams. Funny thing is with streams, we've also sped up their ability to move. And we've done that doing by channelizing streams. And channelizing streams can also actually move nutrients. So what you have is fast movement off the field into, a, into streams where uh, once windy, curvy streams are made into sort of speedy, direct channels, uh, channels that move water and therefore the nutrients from the farms efficiently through the system. Streams are part of what we call a dendritic network, and they naturally move from streams to larger rivers and all the ways to great lakes and oceans. And so what we've done is connected nutrients really, really powerfully to distant ecosystems. I've kind of made a sort of a stole a bit of a, a story from physics to explain this. Physics has this notion they call uh, quantum entanglement, spooky action at a distance. And quantum entanglement is where you actually have two sister particles that, that for whatever reason can be separated, but still speak to each other, even over vast distances such that if you put a spin on one local particle, the other one actually uh, responds to that spin. And Einstein called that a spooky action at a distance. I would argue this, what we've done is ecosystem entanglement. We've entangled ecosystems and their, and their path of nutrients. We've really strongly coupled fields to streams, to rivers, and ultimately to oceans. And by virtue of doing that, we We've created a very spooky uh, action at a distance. The local application of nutrients, say, in some field in southern Ontario, could end up causing a massive bloom of algae, say, in Lake Erie or on a coastal uh, ocean. And that imbalance is arguably ecological spooky action at a distance. What are some of the things that we do on the landscape that is driving hyper-connected ecosystems that produce these diseased ecosystems? Yeah, there, there is evidence of, of these things increasing across the globe. Um, as I mentioned, I gave you an example of a dead zone. Um, and dead zones, there was a 2008 paper, and I won't go into it, but nature that's actually uh, directly showed that there's been an increasing number, frequency of things like dead zones globally. There's also been recently these things that, what I've been telling you the story, dead zones are usually we're talking about the proliferation of uh, microalgae. We've also started to realize um, really, really large-scale connectivity issues with what we call macroalgae. There, in fact, there's a really amazingly, it's an amazing story, if, if not a good one, um, in the sense of its outcome. But we've, people have probably, a lot of people are probably familiar with the building up of what we call macroalgae. This one's called sargassum on beaches all through uh, the, you know, the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico, for example, but also even in Africa. Um, and this has been, I think, since about 2012, beaches have started in tourist areas have probably started being loaded with uh, this sargassum, so much so that it's, in fa it's impacted tourism and caused all kinds of problems. And so when people started finally to say, Where, what's happening? Where is this coming from? It was a deep mystery. And again, it's one of these sort of spooky actions at a distance. It seems that uh, there's a recent paper that does this really nice use of satellites in science, in the journal Science. And they call it the Great Atlantic uh, Sargassum Belt. And what they've found is what the, seems to be the most compelling argument for why we're getting these um, wild buildups of, of sargassum all over beaches is that it seems that landscape um, in the Amazon 
um, that was clear, forest was cleared for for uh, you know for agriculture, and their nutrients swept off the Amazon into the ocean. And what happens is that nutrient then fueled what we call um, macroalgae. And this particular sargassum, which is a pelagic macroalgae, so it was up in the water column, it fuels and grew great, a huge bounty of this macroalgae. It then, nature being highly connected, gets picked up by um, one of the great oceanic current systems that splits there, and one part goes to Africa and another part goes off to the Caribbean. And um, so moves that, that local application of nutrients in the Amazon ends up going out and off the landscape, already moves a long distance. It fuels the fire of this macroalgae. It then gets picked up by nature's connectivity and spread almost globally, impacting beaches all over the place. And this also, these macroalgal sort of blooms, I just gave you one example that, that we're all, a lot of us are familiar uh, with through tourism, but this has happened in other cases and so much so that there's a recent paper arguing what they, they now call these green and yellow tides or green and golden tides often, forgive me. Um, but they've been increasing globally as well. And again, a lot of the story is usually from agriculture um, and the spread of nutrients through all kinds of uh, things. But, but often, you know, things like these oceanic currents that can spread them hundreds to thousands of kilometers. If anything, what can we do to slow down or completely stop these ecosystem pandemics? Yeah, what, what can we do? Well, a really nice thing to, to end with here is to point out that farmers, um, and we need farmers, this is, I'm not, my point here is not to knock the development of agriculture that feeds us, the enormously important thing, obviously. Um, but it's kind of interesting that some of the things that I'm pointing out here, actually, farmers are already clearly aware of, and they're actually doing all... There's organizations like in Canada, one called Alus A L U S, that um, that where there's farmers acting as a, in coalition to actually fight sort of things like this, um, making sure that their farms that are feeding tons of people have uh, well developed buffer strips, for examples, uh, wetlands, all things that can actually impede the movement of, no, of nutrients across the landscape. Okay, um, and in some sense, it's just like what we've seen. There's social distancing to stop the transmission of the disease. Well, what you're doing is actually um, trying to stop the connection of ecosystems. If you can actually put things that absorb nutrients better on the landscapes, say in a conventional farm area where you have buffer zone wetlands, what you're doing in a sense is decoupling those systems. You're reducing that connectivity. Um, and so there's tons of things we can do. And it's sort of interesting because basically what it means is our local land management decisions, therefore implicitly have global actions. So what we're arguing here is because of nature's conductivity, it's indeed true that local actions are the same as actually global actions. So acting local is thinking globally. Awesome, thank you, Dr. McCann. Thank you for listening to the Biodiversity Resilience Network podcast. To find more information about us and what we do, please visit www biodiversityresiliencenetwork.com. You will also be able to access these podcasts on any and all podcast streaming platforms, such as Spotify or Apple Music. See you next time. Thanks.